Matthew 22, verses 41 to 46. Now, while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question, saying, What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? They said to him, The son of David. Jesus said to them, How is it then that David in the Spirit calls him Lord, saying, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand, and so I put your enemies under your feet. If then David calls him Lord, how is he his son? And no one was able to answer him a word, nor from that day did anyone dare ask him any more questions. Heavenly Father, we call on you this morning that you might speak directly to our hearts, that you might be pleased, Lord, to speak to us by virtue, by way of your word. We ask, O oh Lord, that you would give us understanding, that, Lord, you would move our wills, that you would work in the midst of our affections, that, Lord, you would cause us to think your thoughts after you, and that you would shape and mold us, O oh Lord, in the likeness of your Son, Jesus Christ. We call on you in his precious name. Amen. Some of you are well aware, a few years ago, uh, we spent a good part of the summer uh, going around asking people uh, the simple question, uh, what do you think about Jesus? In fact, oftentimes I would ask, <laughs> oftentimes I would ask the question. That's how we met Tina, actually. Uh, oftentimes I would ask the question this way, when you think about Jesus, what comes to mind? And uh, we could talk a long time about some of the answers uh, that we received through that, that summer. But we see in our text this morning that Jesus does something quite similar, doesn't he? He asks the question, what do you think about the Christ? And really with this question, uh, he's calling us to theological reflection, isn't he? I mean, can this question be entertained without theological reflection? I hardly think not. Uh, it's one way of saying that Jesus here is calling us to study theology, isn't he? He really is. He really is. Uh, and Jesus is doing this because the popular understanding of the Christ in the first century, as we're going to see in a few minutes, was just way too small. Uh, there was an understanding that was popular concerning the Christ. Uh, it was just way too small. And I think uh, I will show you that the popular understanding of Jesus today uh, is also uh, way too small. Uh, the theological reflection really is, uh, has to be at a, I don't know if it's at an all-time low, but it's certainly uh, in a low as we look through church history. Uh, there's been many of periods of time where theological reflection was very low. Uh, I, I don't know that it's at its lowest, but it's indeed very low. And the church is definitely suffering uh, for it. Uh, for it. Uh, the only way to really know true teaching from false teaching is to know true teaching, isn't it? I mean, the only way to know the true soul-saving, soul-encouraging doctrine, life-changing doctrine from from false doctrine, which destroys souls, the only way to know the difference between those two is to be well acquainted with, with the truth. 
I don't know any other way. And if we're not well acquainted with the truth, then we're sitting ducks for every wind of teaching that comes down the pike, are we not? Uh, for sure. And we might think for a moment back to Genesis 3, uh, where we, f we have the fall of humanity recorded for us, and we might think about really what happened to our first parents in the garden. How, how did they fall? It was through false doctrine. Uh, Eve submitted to false notions about who God is, and then she failed. So uh, the result, that fall, the result of that fall was all of the suffering that's ever been suffered. So as we look around, as I've prayed just a few minutes ago, as we look around at the terrible brokenness here in our area, it's the result of false doctrine. It can be traced back to false doctrine. All of the cumulative suffering the humanity will ever suffer for is uh, and can be traced back to false notions of who God is. Well, as we speak right now, every hour of every day, uh, lives are being crushed by false teaching. And one thing that the devil would love, he would absolutely love, is for us to continue to buy into the fact that theology, you know, theology doesn't matter. He would love for us to buy into that. Theology doesn't matter. It doesn't make any difference. I don't need all this theology. I don't need all this theological stuff. In fact, there are some who would even maybe go as far as to say that theology can actually get in the way of your walk with God. And we, we've got to reject those notions. And this would be really a good time to advertise a new series that we're going to be doing on Wednesday nights. Um, on Wednesday nights, we're going to, starting in January, we're going to be looking at the Westminster Shorter Catechism. We've looked at it a little bit briefly in past Wednesday night meetings, but I, I think our goal is going to be to try to go through the first 38 questions. And if you're not familiar with the Westminster Shorter Catechism, it's a document that was drafted in 16, between 1646 and 1647 by the Reformers, and it has stood the test of time. Uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's a device that's used to teach biblical truth through a mechanism of questions and answers. Uh, so we'll be looking at that. We'll definitely be needing our Bibles as we looked at that. Uh, we're not uh, uh, putting the Bibles on the shelf and studying some other document. We're using another document to help us study uh, the Bible. So we'll be really clear about that. We'll be, we'll be studying our Bibles. Uh, but at any rate, back to our text. Before we go uh, any further, I'd like to refresh our minds of the context we're in. If we, if we use our Zoom feature, most of us know the Zoom feature on your computer, uh, there's a little zoom feature. There's a little plus and a minus. If you hit the plus, it does one thing. If you hit the minus, it does another. Uh, those who aren't familiar with this kind of thing, if you're looking at a document and you want to make it bigger, uh, then you, you zoom in. If you want to make it smaller, then you zoom out. Um, let's zoom out a little bit so that we can back away from our verses and we can see some of the things that have gone before. What have we been studying? Uh, we've been studying these attempts by the Pharisees and the Sadducees to trip Jesus up in his teaching. Uh, we saw the Pharisees, they conspired against Jesus to try to trip him up while he's teaching, and we saw that it, it turned out to be a disaster. Uh, the Sadducees decided they would give it a go. Uh, they failed miserably as well. Then the Pharisees said, you know what, we're going to give it another try. And uh, uh, Jesus handles them with such ease that to watch that, to have been able to have sat and listened to what was taking place probably would have been absolutely jaw-dropping. 
the way Jesus handles them with such great ease. And now we come to our text, and Jesus has a question for them. And he says, what do you think about the Christ? Now, it's important when we look at this question that we take a minute and we, uh, 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 we consider Jesus' disposition in asking this question. I think that if we were to make a movie of this scene, we might be tempted to think, well, Jesus is thinking, I'm going to get them. I'll show you. I'm going to give you a question, and I'm going to silence all of you with it. Uh, I think that would be wrong if we painted the scene in that kind of a, in that kind of a way. I, I don't think that Jesus is doing anything spiteful here at all, actually. Uh, I think Jesus is really very much trying to get everyone to consider for a moment to try to broaden their understanding of who the Christ is. I don't think this is revengeful or spiteful or of any of this. Uh, I think that would be out of character for Jesus, which is quite amazing, isn't it? These men are trying to kill him. Uh, they're trying to destroy him. And he continues to meet them with such grace and such compassion. Now, we sometimes in the church will talk about words, the, the Christ, the Messiah, all these different words. I, I don't know that we ever bother to define those words. We could... Sometimes maybe sit here for a long time and thinking, well, I don't want to, man, what, what in the world does Christ, what is Christ? What does Christ mean? Well, Christ simply is the Greek word for Messiah. I say, well, that was a lot of help. What's Messiah really mean? Well, Messiah is, just means anointed one. So Christ is the Greek word Christos. Christos is translating uh, Mashiach or Messiah. So it simply means anointed one. And what Jesus is asking here is, what do you think about the anointed one? What do you think about the promised Redeemer who is to come? When I was doing my undergraduate work at Geneva College, I remember one exam question that I had. I don't think I will ever forget this question. Uh, it, it was a 30-point question. And, and so you know there's, there's a lot of hinging if you, if you have a 30-point question on a 100-point exam. Uh, you botch this one up. It's not good. Uh, but the question is, who is Jesus? Now, aside from the exam, you're really not going to do very good in life if you botch that up. Uh, so it was a great exam question. But it's so broad, isn't it? I mean, we could write, John tells us in his gospel that, you know, if everything were be, to be written about Jesus, the, the universe wouldn't even contain all the books. So, I mean, you could just begin writing and writing and writing. And obviously the professor expected us to do quite a bit of writing to assign 30 points to a single essay question. Uh, but Jesus here, he narrows the scope a little bit. He asks uh, really two questions. He says, uh, what do you think about the Christ? And then he gives them some direction as to where he's going uh, with the following question by saying, whose son is he? Whose son is he? Of course, the Pharisees answer, he's the son of David. He's the son of David. And they've answered correctly. I mean, the Lord promised David that one of his sons would reign on his throne forever. Uh, some of you may be familiar with 2 Samuel 7, where we have this great promise recorded for us. Uh, David has already built his house, his house of cedar, if you will. He's dwelling in his house, and he begins to think about uh, the the tabernacle, which was really a portable tent, if you will, and that is the place where the Ark of the Covenant was, uh, was, was held. And uh, David approaches Nathan the prophet, and he says these words. He says, See, now I dwell in a house of cedar, but the Ark of God dwells in a tent. 
And Nathan the king, or Nathan the prophet answers the king. He says, go and do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. And then in verse 5 of 2 Samuel chapter 7, we learn that later that night, the Lord catches up with Nathan the prophet, and he instructs him to say this to David. He says, go and tell my servant David, thus says the Lord, would you build me a house to dwell in? I have not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day, but I have been moving about in a tent for my dwelling. The Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you. He shall come from your body. I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name. I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. So here God is making a solemn promise to David, isn't he? Uh, we call it the Davidic covenant sometimes. We refer to this promise that way. Uh, he's promising that one of the sons of David will be seated on David's throne uh, for all eternity. Uh, the promise uh, became so deeply sewn into the fabric of Israel's heritage that it was known well by every thinking Israelite. And for good reason. Uh, Israel was a, had, had grown to a superpower under King David and the most powerful nation in the world. And uh, after the reign of David, Israel spiraled down. Uh, apostasy and continued backsliding uh, had uh, given the Lord no choice but to judge Israel. And he's, his method of judging them was through foreign invasion. Uh, the, the nation uh, quickly divided uh, after Solomon, Solomon being David's uh, son, uh, quickly divided. And Israel is sacked by Assyria. And then Judah is later sacked by Babylon. And by the time of Jesus' earthly ministry, uh, the Jews are really about as weak as they've ever been in any point uh, in their nation's history. And they're under Roman oppression. So we could try to put ourselves in their place. Uh, here is this promise. God has promised that one of the sons of David uh, is going to come and rule on the throne forever. Uh, when times got tough, we would really want to lean on that promise, wouldn't we? We'd probably be communicating that promise to each other. Yeah, it's bad, but the Lord is going to, the Lord's going to raise up another David for us. That's bad, but the Lord's going to raise up another David. Yes, it's bad, but remember the promise to David. And we'd have a tendency to think about this really in terms of probably a human conqueror, would we not? And that is, of course, the impression that the Pharisees have here uh, as Jesus addresses them. But it's interesting. I want to show a couple of connections in Matthew's gospel here concerning uh, the son of David because Matthew goes through some great lengths to, to make some connections. If we think about the first sentence in Matthew's gospel, the very first sentence it reads this way, the book of genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David. It's the first sentence. Of course, he continues to say son of Abraham. And he's making covenantal connections is what he is doing. And then as we read along, we get to Matthew chapter 9, we find the blind men referring to Jesus as who? The son of David. 
Then when we get to Matthew 15, we find something really remarkable. It's been a while since we've been there, but in Matthew 15, there's this Canaanite woman who is uh, a person who's outside of the people uh, of Israel. She's a Gentile. Yet she refers to Jesus as the son of David. And these threads begin to converge, actually. They reach a, a focal point right here in chapter 22 when Jesus says, what do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? They answer, son of David. Now, Jesus then shows that he's quite capable of asking some deep questions, isn't he? To be questioned by Jesus, imagine that. He asks them, how is it then that David in the spirit calls him Lord, saying, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. Now, if David calls him Lord, how is he his son? I think we can appreciate the perplexity of that question, can't we? How does a son of David become Lord over David? That's really the question, isn't it? And not just Lord over David, but Lord, seated at the right hand of God. It's what it says, isn't it? The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand. That's the highest position. That's a divine position. That's not a position that a human being can occupy to be the right hand of God. How is this possible? Well, Jesus, as I've already said, is quoting from Psalm 110. And in this quote, we find something quite intriguing. Uh, notice, uh, uh, you're probably already noticing it. I mean, the Lord is speaking to the Lord, is he not? If you look at that verse, the Lord said to who? The Lord said to my Lord. Uh, the Lord is speaking to the Lord, right? Uh, and it's even more amazing if we go back to the Old Testament and look at Psalm 110. Uh, you don't need to turn there, but just for a moment, uh, listen. Psalm 10 reads this way. It reads, The Lord, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, said to my Lord, capital L, lowercase o-r-d. Now, I've, I've said things about this before in the past. Some of you already know where I'm going with this, but it's been a while since I've said anything about this. But this idea of capitalizing Lord, fully capitalizing it, is a device that the English translators use to alert the reader that the word that they're translating is the divine name Yahweh. So when you read your Old Testament and you come across Lord and it's all capitalized, in the original, the word Yahweh, the divine name, the name that uh, God uh, gives to Moses at the burning bush, the great I am, uh, the self-existent one, Yahweh, that is the name that is being translated. Now, when, when you see Lord with a capital L, O-R-D, the word that's being translated is Adonai, which means sovereign one. Both of these names refer to God. And what is actually being said here is Yahweh said to Adonai, 
Or we might say, Yahweh said to my sovereign one. Obviously, there's, there's two personalities here. There's two, two people just talking to each other, both of whom are God. This is not the New Testament. This is the Old Testament. Psalm 110, verse 1. The Father said to the Son. Isn't that incredible? Many of the old divines, and I, the more I study this, the more I'm starting to become convinced of it too, believed that uh, uh, David saw, just like Abraham and just like Isaiah, David saw uh, the Lord Jesus Christ. I, I, I'm starting to become of that con conviction myself that David knew much more what was going on here than sometimes we give him credit for. He saw my sovereign one. Here we have a discussion taking place. Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. Now, all of this is to say that Christ is much more than merely a human conqueror. He's much more than merely the son of David. Is, is Jesus the son of David? Yes. But Jesus is also the son of God. Now, I don't think that's new to you. Uh, but I'm taking time to explain all of this so when you're at the water cooler at work and someone wants to talk to you about this, you can say, turn to Matthew 22. And you see there's a quote here from Psalm 110. You see the capital letters? You see the lowercase letters? There's a conversation taking place here. Jesus is making it clear it's a conversation about the Christ. The Christ is Adonai, the, you know, the low, uppercase L, lowercase O-R-D. Is the conversation taking place? Now, I want to make one more point here before we move on. And let's stay close to Jesus' purpose here. Uh, Jesus realizes that the Pharisees understand that the Christ is the son of David. And we have seen that this is accurate. The problem we're having here is that this understanding by itself is not enough. Uh, Christ is more uh, than the son of David. He is the son of God. Uh, we might put this another way. Christ is... Uh, not only fully man, but he's also fully God. Again, we're, we're delving into theology here, theological matters. But I'm going to show you in a few minutes, if this isn't that way, there's no salvation for any of us. Christ is fully man, but he's also fully God. And what's Jesus up to here? If we stop and pause right now, just what is Jesus up to here in his discourse with these Pharisees? What is he doing? Well, he's challenging their conception of who the Christ is. He's challenging them. Okay, how does he do it? Does he say, well, listen, I'm going to introduce you here to Ernie. You see, Ernie, uh, he was lost and in the gutter and everything, and then I come along and, and uh, uh, I... I, I, I shared a few words with Ernie. Now Ernie's jumping for joy and just follow me and life is beautiful. Is that what he says? There's a place for that. I'm not ridiculing that at all. Please don't misunderstand me. I'm not speaking pejoratively about that. There's a place for testimonies, a powerful place for testimonies. I'm not speaking ill of that. But what I want us to see for sure here is when Jesus challenges their conception of who he is, what does he lean on? He leans on Psalm 110. 
In other words, he's leaning on the scriptures. It becomes much more powerful when we lean on the scriptures. We have the Son of David, the Son of God, according to the scriptures. And that should sound familiar to anyone who's familiar with the, the prologue to the, God, to, to the book of Romans. Think about how Paul starts Romans. It's quite interesting. Paul writes this, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. You see, the according to the Scriptures... Concerning his son who was descended from David according to the flesh. Okay, son of David. And was declared to be son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection. Ah, son of God. You see that? According to the scriptures, son of David, son of God. Okay. Why am, I, why am I spending so much time on this? Well, one of the reasons I'm spending so much time on this is because the Scriptures spend a lot of time on this. And the reason the Scriptures spend a lot of time on this is because this is vital. For instance, tomorrow we're at the water cooler at work. And someone wants us to give the reason for the hope that we have in Christ Jesus. And we say to them, well, Jesus, you see, Jesus was the son of David. And Jesus was the son of God that he was both human and he's both divine. He's human and he's divine. Oh, okay. And that, uh, see, his, as per his human nature, he dies on the cross for the sins of his people. Uh, okay. And on the third day, uh, the, the human component is, is raised from the grave. And now he's at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. And uh, he, he's seated in session with the Father and as we speak, his, his enemies are being placed under his feet. Okay, well, that sounds, that sounds really bizarre. But I'm, I'm happy that that works for you. Uh, I'm happy that you've come to the opinion that that's the truth. Whoa, wait a second here. What did you just say? Well, I'm, I'm happy that you've come to the opinion and that's true. I'm happy, that's your opinion, that's your interpretation, I'm happy. Well, no, 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 no. That's not my opinion. That's according to the scriptures. See the importance of that third point? You get it out of your head, this is my opinion. This is not my opinion. I would never be of this opinion if it weren't for the scriptures. I would never be of this perspective if it weren't for the scriptures. In fact, as Jesus was explaining who he was and as he was trying to describe and tried to uh, help people understand just who he, he was, you see what he does here in Matthew 22? He appeals to the scriptures. This is according to the scriptures. If you have a problem with this, you have a problem with the scriptures. And if you have a problem with the scriptures, you've got a problem with God. It's not, my opinion has no bearing in this whatsoever. You see the strength, how much stronger the argument becomes when we do it God's way. I want to close with one last consideration. Um, and that, and that, that's this. I mean, okay, we're at the water cooler. We've just had this talk. And someone says, okay, well, why did Jesus have to be both? Why is that so important? Why does Jesus have to be both man and God? That's a really good question, isn't it? 
Why does he have to be both? Why must we insist that Jesus is both? Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 14 says, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil. Okay, what's that mean? Well, since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, okay, flesh and blood here is referring to human nature. Uh, we're human beings, aren't we? Uh, the children of God are human beings. Okay, since we're human beings, okay, since we're human beings, he himself likewise partook of a human nature, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death. Now, there, there are two truths here that we, that we need to memorize. You might want to write these two verses down if you don't already have them memorized. Uh, they're not too hard to memorize. Uh, but the first one is Romans 6.23, and you've heard it many times, the wages of sin is death. The wages of sin is death. You have to get that in your mind. The wages of sin is death. And the second one is from Hebrews 9.22. Without, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. Okay? The wages of sin is death. Without the, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. Uh, Romans 6.23 and Hebrews 9.22. Let's think of that for a moment. Who did the rebellion? Who did the sinning? Human beings. Who must shed the blood? Human beings. And quite frankly, God is a spirit, right? God is a spirit. And this is where the, the catechism is really important here. One of the questions asked, what is God? What an enormous question. What is God? How do we answer that? God is a spirit. Infinite, eternal, and unchangeable. You know, once you get the catechism down, you can answer these questions. God is a spirit. He's a spirit. Can a spirit bleed? Can he bleed? I think not. I don't think there's a bloodstream. I'm not a medical student. Uh, but I don't think there's a bloodstream. I don't think there's a heart beating. I, I don't know much about this area. <laughs> but I think you'll agree that uh, there's, a spirit can't bleed. And besides that, uh, um, angels um, aren't in view here. Um, God isn't in, in view here either. Humanity is. Humanity is the one that sinned. So, why does God become man? He had to become part of the human race. He had to become a member of the human race so that there would be a heart and there'd be a bloodstream so that there could be a death that would go in the place of his people. Okay, why does he have to be God? What mere man would be able to go to the cross and endure the advancement of God's wrath for the sin of the world? Oh. Would anybody like to give that a try? It's beyond our comprehension of just what took place there. And somehow, mysteriously, the divine nature holds up the human nature in that transaction. 
And this is just one of the reasons why the Christ had to be divine. But the good news is, we have a powerful message here, don't we? Christ is giving us a powerful message. He is the Son of David. He is the Son of God, according to the Scriptures. But because He is the Son of David, because He is fully human, uh, it, it's, it's mind-boggling that He would become a member of the human race to save the likes of us, isn't it? But this is what He has done, and because this is what He has done, there is no suffering. There's nothing that any of us could go through that Jesus could not relate with because He's been there. And because He is God, there's nothing He can't deliver us from. There's nothing that's outside of His grasp, nothing impossible for Him. Now, I'll, I'll ask you a question. What do you think about Jesus? When you think about Jesus, what comes to mind? Heavenly Father, Lord, we pray that you would be pleased, O oh Lord, to infatuate our minds and our hearts with holy thoughts about you, O oh Lord, true thoughts about you, life-saving true thoughts about you. O oh Lord, as we meditate on this passage throughout the day, O oh Lord, may you fill our hearts with these great truths that we have a Savior who is Son of God, Son of David, fully God, fully man. And it is according to your promises in the Scriptures that cannot be changed, cannot be altered, and certainly uh, can do nothing but come to pass. So, oh Lord, we thank you for the great salvation that we have in Christ Jesus. And enable us, O oh Lord, for our own benefit, to be able to articulate this clearly to our own hearts and enable us, O oh Lord, for the benefit of our loved ones around us, that we might be able to articulate this clearly to them. And we pray these things in Jesus' precious name. And everyone said, Amen.